Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. to go outside. <laughs> Has anybody been outside? <laughs> um, my boots were missing. And then uh, magically one showed up. <laughs> so I'm, I'm grateful for the delivery of the one boot. Um, I'm so glad Vitaly's here. <laughs> And he has feet that are my size. It's the only reason why we let him in. Because <laughs> I thought, oh, just in case. Uh, one, one year this happened where my boots went missing. And the person who took my boot, I had um, uh, lace-up boots. And the person who, who took my boots, they had blundstones. <laughs> So there was only one pair of boots left. It was these blundstones. So they were, and they were much, much too small. So this person took oversized... Well, this is what can happen to your mind <laughs> when you're sitting. <laughs> and I had to walk in her boots all the way back to the farmhouse, which some of you know is pretty far, in the dark, and come home like as if I was wearing high heels. <laughs> it almost converted me. And... Uh, the best part is when I came back, she was really upset that even though she had took my boots, my mistake, that I would take her boots. <laughs> and then we had to work with that at a long interview. <laughs> she, she's never been back. <laughs> we weed a few out every year. <laughs> I also wanted to give, give you an update on Jen. So Jen... Uh, Jen, who, who had to leave yesterday, her uh, parents called because her father was dying. She's known this for a month. She emailed me a month ago and said, my father is dying, should I come on the retreat still? And I said, definitely. And if you have to leave, you have to leave. So I think she knew when the phone rang. But uh, Andrew, who was here with, with Jen, um, he drove her back to Toronto and she got to see her father before he died. They raced back there. So I thought that was really beautiful. So we're studying a text uh, called Dogen's Guidelines for Studying the Way. 
I would translate it as uh, points for being in your life. Um, in Japanese, it's called gakudo yojin shu. A gaku means to study or to learn. Uh, do, which is uh, from the Chinese Tao, means a path. And the Tao is a translation of the Sanskrit word marga, which means a path or a way uh, of truth or a clearing. Um, and uh, shu is uh, the Japanese word for sutra. So shu just means like a collection. Um, and yojin is a, a pointer or a warning. It gets translated as guideline. <laughs> uh, I like this idea a lot of a path. Um, when you uh, think about a path in the snow, uh, if you've been outside, um, it's really hard to walk in the snow when it's this deep and there's no path. It's nice for a little while sometimes, but eventually you're kind of looking for the path again. And you can get lost. So one of the uh, things to remember about a path is that you didn't invent it. Other people have gone down the path before. And the further you get down the path, I think the more you start appreciating the path. And you start appreciating history and community. So I want to start by saying a few things about community and practicing on a path. So the first thing is, is that it's really challenging practicing in community. If you have unresolved issues from high school, then a retreat is just like a replay of being by your locker. <laughs> Who might like you? Who's popular? Who's not? If you're a new student, then you have the challenge of being a new student. And the learning curve in the first 24 hours is pretty steep. If you're an older student, you have the challenge of being an older student. Usually the students that have come around for a while, they start getting practice positions. And so you have the challenge of being in your practice position. And some practice positions um, really require a different way of practice. Sebastian has a really good concentration practice. So I thought, he should be the communicator. <laughs> and I was picturing, when I was writing Sebastian, I was picturing his face and the horror. <laughs> and he came up to me before he even... Uh, we, we, we hugged hello, and the first thing he said to me is, when you have a chance, could you take some time and explain to me? <laughs> and then when you have a practice position, uh, you have to really work with other members of the Sangha that maybe you don't know or now you're working with in a new way. And uh, from my perspective, my favorite thing is when you're teaching each other things. Like, I don't think I worked with anybody this year on the incense 
or we didn't do much around the Heart Sutra. It all it kind of came together quickly. Some teachers that I know say things like, uh, um, I'm responsible for all my students. We just had a meeting of 70 Buddhist teachers, and I heard that a lot. I, I, feel, I feel really responsible for all my students. I don't feel that way. I, I want you to be responsible for yourself. So my hope is that uh, we can have a tight enough sangha that it creates independence. So that you can uh, drop your persona and try out another one. And there's always a balance between a learning form so that you can let go of your persona and uh, not getting uptight. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like around orioki or uh, holding the clackers or bowing or how you hold the incense. How do you stay in the form but also completely be yourself? And you can go too far on the other side. Oh, I'm just going to be completely myself. <laughs> My favorite thing so far this retreat are Les's slippers. Whenever she comes in with her slippers, I feel like, oh, we're in her living room. <laughs> so there's a balance between your old habits and, and trying out uh, some new alignment. And I can see it in your face. like, So you can't see this because you're not looking in each other's faces, but I get to see your face. And everyone's faces, they get so soft. It's so nice. Like People come in and they're all like, you know, freaked out. And then people's cheeks, they get so soft. So when I see that, I feel like, oh, then I'm seeing your face again. And every society, every group of people always has a horizontal and a vertical, vertical and a horizontal structure or hierarchy. And this is no different. Sometimes Rose is at the front of the room. Sometimes Andrew's at the front of the room. So also when you have a role, be in the role. It's not special. And then when you're not in the role, don't be in the role. I sit at the front of the room, so you might think I'm special. But this is just a game. I'm just in my practice position. And so when I'm in this role sitting here, I'm practicing as hard as I can. And I feel like if I do my best then you'll feel in yourself that you can uh, raise it up a notch. When I was 20, um, I, I, I made this vow to myself that I would learn how to get still. I thought, if I can't sit still, I'm never going to make it to 30 
And alongside that thought, which was, was, if I can't sit down right in the middle of my life, then uh, how, how could I ever make a decision? Like, what do you make a decision of? And then right beside that thought was, and if I don't meditate, I'll end up like my father. Who's the most alone person that I know. But he doesn't even know it. You know people like this? If their heart was a little more open and they had some friendship, their life would completely turn around. And so I feel like our work is always an acting out of our biography somehow. So I feel like my love of community is because I need to build community. And for some of you, maybe if you feel like you need to build family, then you should build a family. It just takes one other person. And then we have Sangha. Sangha does not mean the number of people in a room. The traditional understanding of Sangha is when you have faith in someone else's practice and it gives you confidence in your own practice. That's community. So you see somebody else practicing and it inspires you to practice. And the Buddha calls this going against the stream. And I'd say in contemporary terms, that stream is the stream of society that is constantly telling you that it's all about you. We have so much healing to do around that story. Trungpa Rinpoche uh, says this, In the ordinary sense, renunciation is often connected with asceticism. You give up the sense pleasures of the world and you embrace an austere spiritual life in order to understand the higher meaning of existence. For us, renunciation is quite different. What the warrior renounces, he he thinks of his students as warriors. Interesting. Um, What the warrior renounces is anything in his experience that is a barrier between himself and others. You hear that? What you renounce is anything that's a barrier between you and others. In other words, renunciation is making yourself more available, more gentle, and open to others. Any hesitation about opening yourself to others is removed. Isn't that beautiful? It's said that the Zen tradition was born 
when the Buddha was going to transmit robes to his student, Mahakashyapa. There was a ceremony where the transmission was going to take place. He was going to give Mahakashyapa robes. Um, And there were all kinds of beautiful flowers. A previous incarnation of Sarah was there. And so there were beautiful flowers everywhere. And um, the Buddha looked at one of the flowers and picked it up. And he twirled it and smiled. And then Mahakashyapa also smiled at the same time. And most of you have heard this story. And the way it always gets interpreted is in that moment, the Buddha transmitted the teaching from Mahakashyapa, or from himself to Mahakashyapa. That's the Buddhist reading of that story. And it was a transmission outside of scriptures. So that's why it's thought of as Zen practice. It's not about the words. It's about the immediate realization. Mind-to-mind transmission. But I've always thought of the story differently, which is, in that story, I don't think the Buddha necessarily was transmitting something like psychically across the room. In the moment the Buddha picked up the flower and Mahakashyapa smiled, they were mutually recognizing something. They were both recognizing something at the same time. And it didn't belong to the Buddha, and it didn't belong to Mahakashyapa. So the same thing is true here on retreat. Nothing is being transmitted to you. You have to do the work. And then together, we realize something. Together, we wake up. Yesterday, uh, in the talk, I focused a lot on this line. um, That if you focus on the discontinuity, notions of self do not arise. If you look at the snow when it's coming down, Water freezes. It's all this snow coming down. Oh, it's like this with rain, too. Look at the rain coming down. And there's this noun, and you say, oh, there's rain. But actually, there isn't a thing rain. There's this whole process, staccato. And our experience is like that, too. This morning... Last night, I had a sore throat. I thought, oh, here comes a cold. This morning, my kidneys felt really weak. And now this afternoon, I have this weird indigestion. I think, I don't know if there's such thing as a fisherman friend overdose. Sarah would know about this also. (laughs) Gives me this weird indigestion. But it's worth it, because then my throat's not so sore. (laughs) You shift from the cushion to the bench, and still it's a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) 
Meditators really know the what-the-fuck mind. Because <laughs> it's like you switch, and it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> I wonder what the Japanese ideogram is for what-the-fuck. <laughs> we should make one. <laughs> and then, like Dogen, we'll just say it's Chinese. <laughs> so it's more <laughs> sacred. So when you start to see your life in these moments of change, it becomes harder to grasp. Because what we're clinging to is not life, it's this desire for rigidity, for comfort. We just want to know. And I feel like my work in interviews with you is just to see where you think you know, and then to kind of push it a little bit. Because usually we can't see it. We think we can see it, but we can't see it. There's a woman named Upasika Ki Nanayan, who I've I've been reading a lot of her work lately. She's considered in Thailand to be the foremost teacher of meditation, female teacher of meditation. And um, uh, I don't think they're published anywhere, but online you can find transcriptions of her talks. They're all between like 1968 and 1978. Um, uh, Here's a talk, here's a section from a talk she gave exactly on this point. When we understand this arising and ceasing, by turning to examine conditions inside oneself, we realize it's neither something good or bad. It's just a natural process of arising, persisting, and ceasing. Try to penetrate and see this, she says. The regular cleansing of the mind will show up any impurities, like dirt, in an otherwise tidy room. Each moment you should clean out any attachment. Whatever should arise, persist and then cease, don't grasp hold of it. And take this principle of not wanting and not grasping deeply into your heart. This is such a worthwhile realization. It doesn't involve extensive knowledge. We just penetrate to see the impermanence in form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Form. Every time I hit my hand, I always have this can I take a tangent for a second? Uh, I, I went to see the Dalai Lama speak in Los Angeles many years ago, and uh, um, somebody asked this question, if a mosquito lands on my forearm, what should I do? Should I kill it, or should I just let it bite me? It's a really good question. And His Holiness said, oh, Well, when it lands, you should kind of brush it away. 
So then the person went back to the microphone and said, well, what if it comes back again after you brush it away? And he said, oh, then you should just gently brush it, brush it away. And the person says, well, what if it comes back again? And then his holiness said, (laughs) back to Dogen. Fearing this, this is this is what we're going back to the text now. For those of you following along, fearing the swift passage of the sunlight, practice the way as though saving your head from fire. Uh, some of you know one translation of this is practice as if your hair was on fire, which I always find funny because monks don't have any hair. Um, reflecting on this ephemeral life. Make endeavor in the manner of the Buddha raising his foot. Um, uh, from the Nikayas, uh, here's a section from the Pali Canon that the Dogen's referring to. I think it's hard to appreciate how, as a young man, Dogen is writing these essays and his knowledge of Chinese and Japanese literary history, uh, poetry, and the canon. It's like, it's incredible. Um, So here's what he's referring to. Uh, The Buddha says, Just as when a person whose turban or head was on fire would put extra effort, diligence, endeavor, earnestness, mindfulness, and alertness to put out the fire on her turban or head, in the same way, a monk should put forth extra effort, extra mindful, Mindfulness, extra alertness for abandoning unskillful mental qualities. Isn't that a nice image? Practicing like your hair's on fire. So we have to do something, but not in the way we've been doing it. There needs to be a little bit of urgency. When there's a death around, like Jen's father, it always makes me feel like some urgency to, to practice. We need to stop, and we need to respond. And we need to do both with a lot of clarity. We need to pause, and we need to act. Both those things. More creativity. And creativity lives always in this space between inhibition and compulsion. Can't do it? Have to do it. And when you sit, you see this wider space open. There's so many more ways to respond. And that's what I mean about embodied practice. The response is in your body. It's not a clever idea. It's a reflex. Let me read a passage from Thich Nhat Hanh. When I was in Vietnam... 
so many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do with all the bombing. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries, or should we leave the meditation hall in order to help people who are suffering under the bombs? After careful reflection, we decided to do both. To go out and help people, but to do it with mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness has to be engaged. Once there's seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems in the world, and then with mindfulness, we'll know what to do and what not to do to be of help. It's an interesting ending, huh? What to do and what not to do. Sometimes there's something you really want to do, but you know you shouldn't do it. But you do it anyways. And the nice thing about the structure of the retreat is there's less opportunity to act that out here. I hope. So that you're taking action from a place of integrity, from the place of creativity, but you're also not holding on to it. It's really important. So it's not just that there's an unrehearsed or spontaneous response to something, but that you don't hold on to it. You drop your chopsticks in the middle of Oriyoki. I'm sure nobody will do that on this retreat. And then it's okay. You spill something, it's okay. (laughs) Nobody is going to come hit you in North America. (laughs) The whole point of Orioki is you're never going to get it right. You can't get it right. Dogen goes on. When you hear a song of praise sung by a Kinara god or a Kalavinka bird, and I'm sure you all know what those are. <laughs> let, let it be as the evening breeze brushing against your ears. If you see the beautiful face of Mao Kyung or Zishi, let it be like the morning dewdrops coming into your sight. So these are the two most beautiful birds in China. And these are the two most beautiful women of ancient China. Zixi, mythologically in China, was so beautiful that when she used to lean over uh, rocks to look at a pond, the fish would kind of move back to get a better look (laughs) at her face. And uh, half, she died when she was 44, and halfway through her career, as the, even back then, that you could have a career as the most beautiful person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who the most beautiful person is. George Clooney. <laughs> 
I have a bit of a thing for George Clooney. I wish, I wish that he, like, we could put someone else's mind inside George Clooney, and then we would have a perfect specimen. <laughs> Anyways, at the halfway through her career, a woman became famous uh, uh, in the same area of China for being the ugliest woman. So there was the most beautiful woman and there was the ugliest woman. And then the woman who was the ugliest woman, she started being in her ugliness with the same embodiment that Zishi was in her beauty. And then she became like a sexual icon at the same time. Can you picture this? Somebody really in their body doesn't have anything to do with our conventional ideas of what's handsome. When you're in your practice, you're more beautiful. I'll tell you that anytime. If you come into the interview kind of down, I'll, I'll say, you're so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> when you see somebody who has a beautiful face, you just let it be like the morning dew. I have a student who lives out of town, and uh, she comes to see me sometimes, and... Uh, She's in her 70s, and uh, she came to see me recently, and uh, she, she came in crying. This is not the stock market person. And uh, so I said, what's up? And she looked me uh, in the eye, and she said, I used to be so. She doesn't live in Toronto, so when she comes and meets me at Queen and Spadina, she spends like many hours just walking around. And when you walk around Queen and Spadina, it's mostly like really young people buying uh, young clothes. And this one day, it just really like hit her. And she said, "I used to be so beautiful." And this was the beginning of real deep insight into impermanence. And after that, she started making all these changes in her life. Able to let go a little bit. The Thai forest monk Ajahn Chah used to say, uh, you have to really teach young people about impermanence, but you don't have to teach old people. They wake up every day with it. And Dogen's just saying, just don't grasp anything. As I said yesterday, grasping is destructive. Um, when 
I want to say just one more thing about beauty. Um, beauty is a really important part of practice, of spiritual practice. And it doesn't get talked about very much. You know, um, maybe a hundred years ago, what was repressed uh, was, you know, sexuality. And maybe uh, nowadays everybody says what's repressed is violence and misogyny. You know, But actually, I think something that's also very repressed in our culture is, is beauty. So many people are sick because they live in ugliness. Look at the kind of cities that we're building. How, how can that not make you ill? Isn't it such a relief to come out here and see gardens that are just arranged perfectly with no human intervention? How did they know how to put that there? <laughs> How did the dogwood get so red? It's winter time and it's like on fire. And I think when we're out of touch with our body, we repress beauty. And then loving the world just becomes moralistic. I should clean it up. I shouldn't make so much waste. As opposed to caring for the world, because it's beautiful. And I don't mean beautiful like pretty, quote unquote. I mean the kind of beauty that arrests your attention, which can be anything. So I'm not talking about um, Kate Moss. Is that... Kate Moss. <laughs> I'm trying to be cool. <laughs> I should have mentioned someone that's more like now. Is she still modeling? I'm glad it's a silent retreat. You can't answer that. <laughs> so a, a sensitive, aesthetic sense is part of our health. And if you look in traditional practices, you'll see that there's always a practice of aesthetics that emerges from insight. Always. One's moved to write a poem. One's moved to change how the flowers are arranged. One changes the color of everything. One pays more attention to detail. In Greek mythology, uh, Psyche, the soul, is in love with beauty, Aphrodite. And I think that when our soul, when our character is lined up, we have more appreciation for beauty and we see beauty in so many more things. Maybe you can see that on retreat. Just the way an Oriyoki bull sits sometimes. Or 
a flavor, where your aesthetic sense comes alive again. Dogen goes on. In the past or present, you hear about students of small learning or meet people with limited views. Often they've fallen into the pit of fame and profit and have forever missed the Buddha way in their life. What a pity. You should not ignore this. And then he goes on a bit of a rant. And basically, and I'll paraphrase, what he's saying is, There are all kinds of teachers who say really, really accurate things. And their words or their writing are completely in line with the Dharma. Except that they haven't let go of their own advantage. Always acting for their own advantage. And so Dogen's getting really, really critical that when you're with spiritual teachers or you're in a community, you should watch very carefully. Because always something creeps in that wants personal advantage. So in this section of the essay, he's saying watch for it in teachers. But coming up, for those of you who've read ahead, he's going to say actually... This is the most harmful thing in yourself. Wanting. I think when we do steady practice, it heals us from, it protects us from the detrimental effect of greed. The greed is not just in society, it's in us. How many things have you wanted on this retreat? How many states of mind have you not wanted? (laughs) That's also wanting. And when you practice, it protects you from the detrimental effect of being an isolated, separate self. You can feel that, I find, I'm saying you, I really feel that in walking meditation. In walking meditation, the slow part always is about me. Just getting the feet right, the breathing right, the body, just feeling the body after the sit, you know. And then... When the walking picks up, something happens where you, you can't you can't like analyze the parts that way. You just have to be walking. And there are so many ways to walk, even without changing the form. And then once you get a feel for that, with your peripheral vision, you can feel the whole Sangha walking. And that's my favorite part, where like after seven minutes where then there's just a sense that we're all walking. And if your mind comes in and goes, oh, we're walking together, what is the, what's the meaning of the walking? 
then you really start suffering. Like people who try to figure out walking meditation are just, it's a disaster. It doesn't mean anything. One of my teachers, Patabi Joyce, used to always say, uh, people used to always say, could you give me a mantra? Because like supposedly when you go to India and you're a hippie, you should ask a teacher for a mantra. It doesn't matter if they're a teacher, just any Indian person. You just ask them for a mantra. So he got this a lot. Like, could you give me a mantra? And uh, he would always tell people, uh, inhaling, exhaling. And Patabi Joyce called inhaling, exhaling, ajapa mantra, which means the mantra that has no meaning. Walking meditation is like the same kind of mantra. It doesn't mean anything. Just walking. You figure there is self where there is no self. You get attached to birth where there's no birth. You do not practice the Buddha way, which should be practiced. You do not cut off the worldly mind, which should be cut off. Avoiding the true teaching and pursuing the groundless teaching, how could you not be mistaken? He develops this attitude in this essay more than you you see in other essays. Where he's trying, he's he's trying passionately, and you know, maybe it's lost a little bit in this translation where he comes across a bit of a monologue, but he's trying to passionately say, don't waste your time. You don't have to find the perfect everything. There's gonna be things about this practice that you don't like this year. And then next year you might like it. Next year we might do away with it. But instead of focusing on the things, focus on what happens for you. And then you're working with your mind. And we're transforming ourselves and we're transforming our culture. One human body at a time. And it's so important these days that we're here doing this practice. Maybe it's more important now than in Dogen's time. In our culture now, there's a class war being waged. The ultra-rich against the poor. So much inequality. And the big loser is the environment. So when you learn how to sit still and pay attention, what we call mindfulness or awakening, it's a political act. When your attention is all fragmented, it's really easy to sell you stuff. 
If your attention is fragmented and you feel a little bit of inadequacy, it's really good for advertisers. And it's really hard for the environment or for people who don't have a voice to fight back. So that's why we're here doing this practice. Because we can create a different kind of culture. And every time a culture starts to fall apart, there isn't some grand new idea that comes in and takes over. What, what takes over and has influences is whatever good practices are just there lying around at that time. So if we keep cultivating this community and this practice in our hearts and these values in our relationships and in our families and in our work, then we're actually practicing the kind of society that we want to live in. And don't worry about the other stuff because other people will take care of the other stuff. Just do what you, you can do. And right now your work is cultivating non-reactivity. More spontaneity. And a deeper appreciation for beauty. There's no utopia. I hope you've seen that. Nirvana is not a state that you get to one day. I used to think that when you get to nirvana, then there's no more indigestion. start eating McDonald's again. <laughs> Buddha nature is only here in you in this moment. So easy to miss. As Dogen says, what a pity. I wanted to end um, with a uh, quote from a Zen master named Ganto. There is no other task but to know your own original face. This is called independence. The spirit is clear and free. So on this retreat for the next two days, there's no other task but to know your original face. And that's being independent. 
I've said to a couple people in interviews, and I'll just say it to the room, that sometimes um, in interviews um, I'll give you something I want you to work on, like a question or a different meditation practice, or sometimes I ask you to work on something and come back and tell me what's happening. And it's really important that confidentiality works in both directions so that nothing you say to me gets repeated. But when I give you a practice or a question or something to think about or contemplate or struggle with, it's important that you really keep that to yourself. Because I might give somebody else exactly the same practice. But... I don't want the same response from them. Some, a couple people have said to me this year, oh yeah, I was working on that and then I talked to so-and-so about it. They were working on it too. And I thought, uh-oh. Two people are going to come to me with the same. It's both going to be wrong. Your original face is your original face. Only you can express that. It's not written down anywhere. Your life. Amazing. Thank you.